Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, April 1st, 2020, and this is not an April Fool's joke. You're listening to the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you all for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Bovey. Today in our interview, I'll be speaking with Dr. Holly Ordway. She's the newly appointed Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word of Fire Institute, and she's a visiting professor at Houston Baptist University. We've got an exciting interview about how writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and others have influenced apologetics. That part of the interview today is pre-recorded, so we're not going to be able to take any phone calls. And I warn you right away, the beginning of the interview may have a few sound quality issues, but they're much improved later in the interview. I want to welcome all our listeners on KEDC 88.5 FM Hearn Bryan College Station. And also our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And a shout out to our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. The beginning part of our program is live, so if you have something to add, please call us at 85LOVERED-C, 855-683-7332. And this morning, of course, as always, I'm joined by our station director, Thaddeus Romanski. Dr. Romanski, how are you this morning? Deacon Mike, good morning. Pleasure to be with you. Really an honor. And we also have our station director from Waco, Robin Waters. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, Deacon Mike. Thanks for having me with you. Always a pleasure. Now, I mentioned that the sound quality for the interview is a little touchy at the beginning. And in part, that's because we're all learning to do things a whole new way. We're not together in the studio. We're actually meeting via telephone over the mixer at the station. So how are some of these changes that we're making affecting the day-to-day operations at the radio stations? Hey, Deacon Mike, don't forget about me. Oh, that's right. <laughs> of course, our general manager, Dennis Maka, is also howdy. with us this morning. Howdy, hey, everybody. Howdy. I'm the lone guy in the studio, actually. I'm, I'm the one pushing the, the bells and the whistles and the buttons. So, yeah, we're doing, we're doing great, Deacon Mike. It's just a, a little strange because we haven't had studio guests for a couple of weeks now. And, um, you know, it, it hasn't changed our operation, except for I know that Caitlin and, and Robin and Thaddeus really miss me a whole lot. Um, at least that's what I've heard. You know, they're, they're missing me a whole lot. Very, very true. Very true. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we're, we're staying in touch uh, with one another from our homes. Uh, for the most part, I'll come up to the office and studio and, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing on and I've stayed as busy, busy as always. And Caitlin is listening and monitoring from home. And she just texted me, says, Caitlin says, howdy. So, uh, you know, we're all we're all on board and we're just kind of in different locations. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because things have changed a little bit here and there. And our our future is um, still bright 
and it is still um, questionable about some of the events that we have coming up. But, you know, we're going to play that as uh, we get there and follow the local authorities' decision-making, and we trust and respect those um, that are in the decision-making process and those that are on the front lines. And I think that's important to remember that the whole point of this is to get this over with as quickly and as pain, uh, painlessly as possible. And it requires all of us working together and doing what we need to do to help get over this. And mm-hmm. part of that, of course, is the radio station providing information and diversions yeah. now and then for everybody stuck at home. Well, we've been trying to ramp up our education about spiritual communion. Um, we're we're we added an extra daily mass. Um, we're we're really ramping up our services during this time of need for those that are at home to try to educate them about the faith as well as what's going on and how we don't need to panic but be prayerful in our our efforts to uh, to battle this this crisis that we're all in. And so we been praying uh, extra prayers on the air, you know, you name it. We've been trying to ramp up and be even more pertinent and more helpful during this time. Right, guys? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Oh, captain, my captain. (laughs) (laughs) He's not speaking to me. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I wanted to bring up is Mm -hmm. while we're talking about the changes that this has caused not just for the radio stations, but also for our individual parishes. The parishes all have to do things completely different from what they're used to doing. One of the oddest things is doing private masses. Luckily, uh, I think with the modern technology, we now have the means to broadcast those masses to everyone. And I was thinking just uh, the other day that, you know, if it wasn't for the technology today, how would this look if we had, you know, gone strictly to private masses? There was no Mm -hmm. way for people to participate at home. That would be strange. Um, It's strange enough as it is. I will, I will admit, I I know the first time that I participated in a, um, a distance mass from our home, uh, it's something that was very moving. It was moving in two ways. It was both very sad um, that I, I missed our St. Anthony's Church family and I missed receiving the Eucharist. And it was so sad that I felt myself, you know, welling up with tears. But on the other hand, it was also very encouraging to me to know that, you know, that fire is still in my heart, that I, I have that. So, you know, it's, we can all get into a routine of just being humdrum go through our daily lives, go to mass, you know, participate, but not really feel it. And so it gave me a taste of what was in my heart that I hadn't really had in a long time. So in in that way, it was a blessing. Now, I was going to ask, have all of you all participated in the uh, mass online, either the one at your home parish uh, or uh, at one of the national ones like Bishop Barron's or EWTN's? Have all of you all done that? Yes, to both. Yes, I have, for sure. Both, mm-hmm. yes. Yes. So my question to all of you all, and I'll do it one at a time, how do you go about participating in a Mass, either on TV or online? Do you have a routine? Thaddeus, go first. Um, 
well, what we've been doing on uh, Sundays here at home is we, we all uh, get dressed in our Sunday best like normal. Uh, we try to keep the communion fast, uh, Robin and I and the kids that can receive communion anyway. Um, and we kind of set up our living room a little bit differently. We put out icons. We light a candle on either side of the TV, um, have a crucifix out, a picture of the Blessed Mother. We try to make it a, a prayerful environment, a, a reverent environment um, as we watch the Mass. And then what we try to do is I try to remember that the Mass is a sacrifice. And whether we're there with the priest or not, it's, it's the priest, because of his holy orders, who is leading us in worship of the Father and who is performing the sacrifice on the altar. And so even though we're not there in, in physically in person, that sacrifice is still efficacious for us. And it's up to me to put myself and my needs and my worries and my whole self, soul, body, and mind on the altar symbolically with the bread and wine, that offering of bread and wine, those gifts, they symbolically represent us on the altar being consecrated with Christ. And that's what I try to spend my time meditating on during the Mass. Robin? Wonderful. Well, I can say that I'm, I'm very impressed with, with you, Thaddeus, because we're not <laughs> quite as... Uh, Maybe orthodox, I guess you could say, <laughs> but but we are uh, blessed to be able to participate in uh, Sunday Mass and daily Mass as well. But on Sundays, what we've been doing is my son and his wife and our two grandchildren, who are two and a half and eight weeks, come over, and uh, what we uh, it's it's been very good. But it's but we're not dressed in our Sunday best. I'm uh, I'll, I'll make a confession. Uh, we all had our pajamas on, uh, and but uh, what I tried to do and tried to encourage them to do is to make sure we read the readings, you know, ahead of time. I'm in the habit of doing that anyway, and really start on Monday reading the readings mm -hmm. for Sunday, mm -hmm. and uh, being prepared for mass because it ends up being as prayerful as you make it. That's right. Uh, if you're gonna you know, treat it like you're watching a TV show or a commercial. That's what it's going to be like. So yep, we try to point. treat it purple. And uh, and what I did this last week was when it came time for the readings, we actually uh, silenced Father and and I did the readings like as if I was a lector at Mass. Mm. And then and then Father came back. You know, when the when the gospel started, and uh, just did that to be maybe a little more personal. You know and mm -hmm. uh, Something well, that was the first time I'd done that, uh, and so we, we did that, and uh, mainly just uh, tried to keep it. We did rearrange our living room, like you said. We actually had a bench, much like a pew, that we set up, and uh, and went through all the uh, all the the typical motions that we do in mass. You know, standing, yep. and kneeling, and sitting, uh, just as you right. normally would. And then a very special part uh, came at communion which we couldn't receive the Lord. So we did a spiritual act of communion and, and I'll be honest for me, that was very powerful. Mm -hmm. Us too. Us too. 
Yeah, they just and play Dennis, on the screen at St. Mary's. Mm-hmm. Uh, very similar to what uh, both of them were saying. I, I printed the readings ahead of time. I printed the spiritual communion. I printed the prayer um, uh, for those affected and impacted by the coronavirus that we've been praying at our church. I printed that out ahead of time. We made sure we did all the the, the motions. Um, one thing I, I will say is sometimes the, we were doing it live, uh, live stream over Facebook, and since everyone and their dog, which is a great thing, um, and this time literally and their dogs, are, are participating in Sunday services, mass or other uh, denominations, the internet was a little glitchy. And so when it came time to to say the creed, it was really lagging and sputtering. And so I muted the TV and we still went ahead as a family and and did that. We participated in the song. So it was very, very much as much as we could, a, a normal routine that we could. And we set aside that time without distraction. So I think that's very important, whether you're uh, watching on TV or even listening to it at one of the many opportunities we provide twice a day, every day on, on Red Sea Catholic Radio, participate. Don't just listen. Repeat the, the, the prayers. Repeat and pray along with. Um, in, engage in that. And I would encourage everybody to do that, especially um, if you're having difficulty with technology online, listen to it on the radio. So, um, you know, and speaking of technology, Deacon Mike mentioned um, that our interview coming up in, in about a minute and a half is, is a bit glitchy at first. And so what we found is that uh, you know, voice over IP phone lines aren't always the most reliable when everyone's trying to use the internet. So you'll hear his questions kind of uh, drop drop out and garble a little bit. Hang in there for the first few minutes of our, our broadcast. It does get better. We are able to broadcast it uh, via recording. And so we actually stopped, had him call back on a different line, and it was clear. And so you're going to hear that in, in about a minute when we go to that interview. Uh, Deacon Mike, could you explain what they're about to listen to? Yes. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're going to be talking to Dr. Holly Ordway, and her specialty is the Inklings, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, and uh, how they influence apologetics by their writings, especially their imaginative writings. And I think it's absolutely fascinating, the point that we can do apologetics by telling stories, and that's what both J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis did in their uh, writings. So uh, it was a fascinating interview. I was excited because Lewis, Chesterton, and Tolkien, and others are some of my favorite writers. So well, as I you'll find out, as interested as I am. Yeah, as you'll find out, Deacon Mike was pretty excited about this interview, and it, it shows. And we are very excited to bring it to you right after the break, folks. Stay tuned for more Red Sea Roundup right after this break. And as promised, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Holly Ordway, the newly appointed Fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute. She's also a visiting professor at Houston Baptist University. Good morning, Dr. Ordway. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm pleased to be on your show. Thanks for having me. 
Uh, it's my pleasure to have you, and especially considering that one of your fields of expertise is J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and their works in apologetics and how their writings relate to communicating the faith. So I'm delighted to have you on. But before we get into that, um, talk a little bit about your new role at Word on Fire. Right. Well, as I said, as you said, introducing me, I'm a new fellow of faith and culture. So I'll be working full-time for uh, Word on Fire. Um, and that, of course, as I'm sure many of your uh, listeners know, is Bishop Robert Barron's uh, ministry that focuses on um, evangelization, especially through new media um, and I'm particularly going to be working for the Word on Fire Institute, which is a sort of educational branch where people can subscribe and get you know, video courses and uh, other materials. So I'll be doing um, work for the Institute. You know, I've already done one video course for them. I'll, I'll do more in the future. And I'll be writing for their journal, um, Evangelization and Culture, very regularly. Um, I'll be writing for the blog, um, doing articles and um, other writing. And um, Word on Fire is... Um, expanding their publishing lines. Um, they already have the Word on Fire Classic series. Now they're going to be publishing um, books by you know, new authors, and my book on Tolkien um, is going to be published by Word on Fire early next year. So that's going to be the first, kind of the first big fruit of my work for the Institute will be their publication of Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. Fascinating. Now, one of the things I noticed on your uh, bio for your education, uh, English and apologetics. How did you get from English to apologetics? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, as you, so my background um, is in English literature. Uh, my PhD is in English literature, um, and that's actually what I was uh, teaching uh, full-time before I came to work for the apologetics program at Houston Baptist University, which is where I have been up until now. Uh, and so my formation um, as an academic is in humanities and literature. Um, I'm an adult convert, so I was already a professor of English with my PhD um, teaching English when I became Christian um, and you know, then a few years later became a Catholic. And so I already had this deep familiarity with literature, uh, and it had actually played a really important role in my coming faith. Um, and so it was really natural for me as I began to think about how, how can I – do my bit. How can I share the faith? How can I, you know, do the work of apologetics? That I was drawing on my background and my skills in literature, in the imagination, and then this um, led to my getting hired to actually to help develop the cultural apologetics program at Houston Baptist University, the MA in apologetics, um, which is what I taught for eight years. Um, and as you noted, still a visiting professor. Now that I've um, moved over full time to Word on Fire, and so um, this. Background in literature has really helped me to find new ways to really to evangelize, to use imagination to help make these arguments more meaningful, um, because I think that's the real problem we have in our, our present day. We've got great arguments, but people aren't listening and they aren't hearing things. Um, they're not grasping it. So rather than just repeating our arguments sort of louder and louder, that doesn't work. Let's find new ways to do that. Um, and that's why my, my background in literature has really been a big help. Now, I can't help but ask, I've heard C.S. Lewis referred to as the greatest Catholic apologist that wasn't Catholic. <laughs> How much influence did C.S. Lewis 
have on your conversion, if any? A really big, yeah, really, really big influence. Um, uh, because first of all, all the way back when I was a little girl, um, I was raised in a really non-religious household, but I read a ton, um, and C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia were one of my favorite sets of books, um, along with um, Tolkien's Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. The Narnia books were really compelling, um, and I, I had no idea at the time that there was anything Christian about them. I mean, I might have been the only person in the entire world who did not realize that Aslan had anything to do with Jesus. <laughs> I really didn't. Um, and so, for instance, the end of the Don Treader, um, when there's that bit with the lamb and the fish on the seashore, I remember kind of not getting it and thinking, well, that's odd, but okay. Um, and then it was later on that I realized this, and I was at first sort of irritated with, with C.S. Lewis because he was a favorite author, and I, you know, I had become an atheist, and I, how can my favorite author be one of those stupid Christians? But then I you know, realized that I still loved the books, and so I went to this phase of, you know, well, okay, I'll, I'll like you even though you're a Christian. Um, so there was that, that, you know, presence there of Lewis in my, in my imaginative life, um, really nourishing my imagination along with what Tolkien had done, um, and also the other Christian authors that I'd read with these kind of Christian images and, and, you know, a Christian view of the world that was really meaningful. And then, you know, when I eventually got to the point of saying, okay, I, I think I want to find out more about this Christian stuff, you know, because, you know, these authors, you know, Lewis and Tolkien and Hopkins and Dunn and Herbert and all these other authors, you know, they're not stupid. They couldn't be stupid and superstitious idiots if they write the kind of powerful things they're writing. So their work prompted me to start asking, well, what did they believe? Just to kind of know. And that led me to learning, you know, engaging with the, with, you know, what do Christians believe with an open mind? Um, and one of the books that I read fairly early on was C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and that was just tremendous. It really set things out very clearly for me in a very helpful way, in addition to all these other things I was reading and thinking about. Um, and his Crusade Letters also, and The Great Divorce, really helpful um, in bringing me to a recollection or a recognition of the, of the truth of the Christian faith. And of course, then as an apologist, you know, one of, one of the reasons that Lewis's work in those books was so effective is that he's such a powerful communicator. How is he such a powerful communicator? Well, because he uses metaphors, he uses imaginative language, he helps to create meaning for these concepts that were totally new to me. Now, one of the things I noticed is the progression from the Chronicles of Narnia to mere Christianity. And do you see a connection, and you see this with uh, uh, stories like uh, Tolkien's um, Lord of the Rings series, that you build an anticipation for something that you don't really know is there when you're just reading them, and then when you explore uh, especially in Lewis's case, Vikings like New Christianity and the Great Divorce, you realize that the same faith underlies storytelling. Yes, I think that's I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, in many ways, uh, I think works like the Chronicles of Narnia or the Lord of the Rings um, could properly be called pre-evangelistic in, in some senses, in that they lay the groundwork. 
And I think this is really important because a lot of Christians are just too quick to want to have stories be kind of just apologetics arguments wrapped up in a story, you know, like trying to get someone to swallow a pill. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Or if you try to do it, it doesn't, it's not really effective. I think what makes a, a powerful story like the Lord of the Rings or like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, what, what makes it effective is that these are deeply Christian works in the worldview that underlies them, um, more implicit in Tolkien's work, more explicit in Lewis's work. But in both cases, the story is the story. The story is meaningful. And it, it provides a mode of imaginative engagement that's valuable in itself. And so you can then kind of come to grips with, for instance, the idea of self-sacrifice, whether you see it in Aslan dying for Edmund or you see it in Frodo you know, taking the ring to Mount Doom. And these are the kind of things that, that give a robust meaning to, you know, for instance, then going to the gospel and reading about the crucifixion. Um, and I think that really is a, is a powerful part of their effect in terms of evangelization and, and catechesis. And I think uh, you would agree, we see this in other Catholic writers like Flannery O'Connor also, um, in the idea that while you may not overtly realize how much their faith underlies their writings, it is work of catechesis just because in reading it, you understand that there is a morality there that may be absent from other stories. Exactly. And I think that is the fundamental thing, because you can have a story in which characters do terrible things. I mean, Flannery O'Connor's stories are full of people doing terrible things and having terrible things happen to them because she's, she's interested a lot of times in exploring resistance to the gospel, what happens when people are rejecting it, what happens when they don't get it. Um, and so, you know, we have these stories that, you know, they might not have happy endings. They might be in some ways very disturbing or unsettling, but the point is that underlying it is that, that, that morality, that sense that there, there is good, there is evil, this is how it plays out in the world. And I think that's really important to counteract, um, I think, a certain superficial tendency that, that some people, you know, Christians have, that they want any story that's, you know, a good Catholic story, a good Christian story, to have all the characters make the right decisions and everything ends up perfectly. Well, <laughs> that's not what happens in the real world. And so if we have that all the time in our fiction, it's not going to be believable. What we actually have in, in real life is people making bad choices and sinning and, and doing terrible things and, and seeing how that plays out in a context where there really is a sense that certain things are good, certain things are bad, and that human life is complex. That actually conveys the, the reality of the moral law, I think, much better than the more superficial treatments. And I want to remind our listeners that we're talking to Dr. Holly Ordway, the newly appointed Fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute. And I want to remind everyone also that this segment is pre-recorded. Dr. Ordway, one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is when we're talking about Christian writers, and we mentioned uh, Tolkien and uh, Lewis especially, and their role in apologetics. Why is it so important to focus on them today? 
Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, and there's kind of two, there's sort of two points I would, I would say there. Um, one of them is the, the lesser point is that we focus a lot on Tolkien and Lewis because they, st- they stand out head and shoulders and almost, you know, whole body above what is being written today um, in terms of, you know, fiction and poetry that that conveys the Christian worldview. And in, in some sense, that's because of their greatness of, to a great extent, but it also is because we've in a way relied too much on them. We've been trying to copy them rather than do better work, you know, good work in our own lives. So I think in a way the, the prominence of Lewis and Tolkien, and even we can add Flannery O'Connor is kind of like the third person who usually gets you know pointed out. Um, you know, we have only you know, single digits of great writers that you point to in a, in a field, that that's kind of the signal that we need to kind of get on the job. We need to be doing more, better work and not just imitating. And I think that's been a problem. That's the smaller reason. But the greater reason, the much more important reason um, is their true greatness. Um, and I think not, not just in what they produced, but also how they did it. And I think you know, we hopefully, God willing, will get in the future, you know, raise the level of writing overall, get many more authors, but Lewis and Tolkien will continue to be at the top um, because they're simply just great writers. And one one part of that is they're just simply so good at the craft. They read deeply, they read widely, they read through their whole lives. They were really attentive to language, to to getting their stories told well. They didn't just sit down and dash at any old thing. It was, this was really crafted and revised. They were part of the Inklings. So they were you know, sharing their work regularly and getting feedback and encouraging each other. This analysis of writing that a lot of people don't realize is, is so important, it, but it truly is the sense of um, a writing community. And, we, and Lewis and Tolkien have that. And they also, I think, had both of them, the right understanding uh, about you know, how to convey issues of faith. They did it differently, different modes of doing it. But fundamentally, it came from them being devout Christians. They were, you know, uh, Walter Hooper, um, C.S. Lewis's literary executor, um, once described C.S. Lewis as the most converted man I know. Um, And Tolkien was a devout Catholic uh, through his whole life. And in both cases, that results in work that's that's integrated. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go and write a Christian fiction story, you know, kind of add on. Everything came out of their, of their experiences, their knowledge and their faith, not really separating them. And I think that's what makes it great. And also it's something that we, we, can, Im- we can imitate that, that integration. Um, and that I think will do all of us a lot of good. On that topic of integration, one of the things that becomes evident reading uh, the great writers is that not only did they have a great imagination, but their works were well thought out. They were great thinkers in addition to that. And sometimes we don't get the combination in modern writing. Would you agree? I think I, I think so. I think people in the modern culture today, 21st century, we tend to be very compartmentalized. You know, people tend to think of themselves as, oh, I'm a creative writer, I'm an artist, or, you know, I'm, I'm an academic. Uh, it's kind of a joke that a lot of academics, you know, don't write well because they haven't really thought about communicating. Um, but in fact, the best academics do write very well because they're integrated. They realize that communication is not separate from, you know, comprehension. 
And, uh, and actually, it's interesting. One of the great things about Lewis is that his academic writing is so clear, so beautifully presented, um, and that we can emulate as well. So I think we do really need to focus on the both and. And as Catholics, we ought to, you know, kind of recognize that as sort of a principle of our faith. You know, it's it's you know the sacramental principle. It's you know it's not mind or body or soul. It's well the incarnate self. So I, I think. We need to be thinking about how can we bring together the imagination and the intellect so that the imagination is fed properly um, and also so the intellect can be properly fed as well. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I, uh, the Inklings met at a pub called the Eagle and the Child. G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc and others met in a pub called the Cheshire Cheese. Is there an importance to pubs to this? Well, this is it's it's a good point. Now, um, American um, listeners might actually be benefit from knowing the difference between a pub and a bar. Um, I spent a lot of time in England, um, and one thing that I've realized is that pubs um, they're not bars. Um, there's no real equivalent to a pub um, in America. I think the closest you could get is like imagine a coffee shop that serves beer. Um, it's or a pub is you know, it's, it's often called your local your local pub um, and traditionally and even still today um, it's a place where you you meet your friends you know you have a pint or you don't or you just hang out you have a meal you know unpretentious food most of the time although there are gastro pubs that serve really good food as well um, so you get um, this sense of a place where people meet it's it's what's called the third space you know neither home nor work but a place where you can come together. Um, I think that, you know, in, in English, English culture, the pub is sort of the quintessential third space, um, especially for men. Um, and so that's a natural place where, you know, Tolkien, Lewis and their friends would, would meet. It's like, of course, uh, that's what they, it was a natural gathering place just to be. And I think that underscores a point that I made a moment ago about the need for community. Um, we're so atomized, you know, every, you know, we, we just, we are so also busy all the time. I mean, just the fact, think about this. Tolkien and Lewis um, were very, very busy men. I mean, they worked tremendously hard. They always had writing projects. They were teaching. They were lecturing. They were tutoring. They were giving lectures. Um, Tolkien was on a lot of committees. He was a reader for a lot of theses. Um, it would have been very easy for them to not have time to do this. Well, Tolkien also was married with four children, um, busy men, but they carved out time in the schedule to just spend time with each other, to just be together. Especially the, the meetings at the Eagle and Child were much more social. They also met as inklings in Lewis's rooms in Maudlin College, Oxford, and that's where they read their manuscripts to each other. So we have this sort of more social space and this sort of more formal, slightly more formal structured gathering but in either case, it was time that they made that they valued to be with friends, to be with kindred spirits and not to have, you know, a specific agenda. Well, we've got to get through X, Y and Z, you know, before next week, but just to be. And I think that fruitfulness over many years, that 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 camaraderie is a really important part of what made them such powerful writers and communicators and and such a powerful you know, network of, of of writers. I think we might do well to try and recover that, that sense of community. And I think that's a valuable point because there is a certain sense of humility uh, 
in the fact that you're willing to share your works before you've published them, to talk to others about them, to get their input before you put them down. If you're in a trusting community, that's possible. If you don't trust the others, that's not so possible. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, just take Lewis and Tolkien, for instance, as, as examples. Um, C.S. Lewis's first um, science fiction novel, the Silent, Out of the Silent Planet, um, he had shared that with the Inklings. Um, Tolkien loved it. Tolkien helped to get it published. He wrote a letter to his own publisher saying, this is a great book, you know, praising it. You know, you should really encourage, you should consider publishing it. His publisher, you know, didn't end up taking it. But, you know, in, in large part, because of Tolkien's praise for it, sent it on to another publisher who did. Um, and then, you know, Tolkien, you know, acknowledged very, very gratefully that without Lewis's encouragement and interest, he might, he probably would never have finished The Lord of the Rings. So right there, you see that some of the most important works that we have from, from these men came, you know, out of their encouragement from each other. And I would encourage your, your readers um, to look at a very good book um, by Diana Glyer called Bandersnatch, which explores the creative collaboration of the Inklings. Um, and it's a book I've actually used as a text in my creative writing classes. And it really just kind of looks at how the, how they collaborated, encourage each other, and how we can do the same. Because I know that as a writer myself, um, creative collaboration, encouragement is so important. Um, you know, I know that it benefits me a great deal to have certain trusted friends to whom I can show my writing and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this? Give me some feedback. And then to get that feedback and respond to it. You know, we aren't made to be you know, atomized little individuals working in isolation, you know, the writer's task, it, it is kind of a lonely task in a way, because we've, you know, we've got to be the one who puts the words on the paper. But there needs to be that dynamic, that's that sharing that back and forth. That's where you, know, you really get the improvement, the honing, the, the greater quality. Um, I certainly see that in my own work. Again, we're talking with Dr. Holly Ordway, and the program is pre-recorded. One of the other things I was thinking as we were talking about all this is one of my favorite works of C.S. Lewis is the Screwtape Letters. And it seems to me such a wonderful work of apologetics, even though it takes exactly the opposite view. When you read it, it sounds like advertisement for the opposing side. Why is it so, why does it work? Oh, well, that's, that's a big question. How does any literary work work? Um, but you hit on, you know, his, his satiric mode is to have the whole story be a series of letters told by a devil who's trying to, you know, bring about the, the damnation of the quote-unquote patients. You know, he's trying to help his junior devil, you know, snatch a soul away from God and, and bring him to hell. So you, you hear it all from the devil's side. And this is such a creative way of engaging with it because the topics that Lewis is covering are ones that so often people are like, yeah, yeah, I know all that. Yeah, I know I should pray. Yeah, you know, okay, yeah, I know God is important, et cetera, et cetera. But they can become just stale from overuse. And this idea of like, oh, yeah, I want to go to heaven. What does that even really mean? It's a good thing. Yeah, okay. But then to spin it around and to really see what is what is the opposite perspective um it really shines a new light on it um and so that 
kind of reversal forces us to look at things fresh and say, oh, oh, so that's, that's how it really is. And I think that's the real, the genius of that conceit is the reversal. It's tremendously effective. Uh, actually, the reason that came to my mind is right now everyone's in shelter-in-place mode in the United States. And the thought hit me that it's very easy to become disengaged from your faith community. And one of the things that uh, screw tape letters and uh, that Lewis points out is how easy sometimes it is for the devil to just without any effort, have us stop thinking about our faith life. And so this is, you know, a danger, but uh, reading the screw tape letters it might be a very good reminder of what we need to do. Yeah. And also, you know, we, we should, I think, take this, you know, this enforced isolation. Um, I'm in Wisconsin right now, and we also are sheltering at home as we're you know, trying to do the best we can to, you know, deal with this, with this virus. Um, and I think it's an opportunity. I mean, obviously, it's not an opportunity that we would have wanted, but it's given to us. How can we grow in our faith during this time? And I think one of the one of the bits um, in the screw tape letters that uh, that does this re- does this kind of reversal effect is where the the devil screw tape is advising his his um, junior devil to try and get the patient to think of his faith as Christianity and something else. Christianity and pacifism, Christianity and social work, Christianity and vegetarianism or, or what have you. And then, Screwtape says, it puts the two on a par and then working them a little more. And then Christianity will become just the thing that helps the other one. The real agenda will be the pacifism or the vegetarianism or the, or the patriotism or anything. And then, ha, 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 he will effectively have discovered the patient's Christian faith. And I think that is something we are all tempted to. It's why Lewis put it in there. And I think this time of we can ask ourselves, have I been putting it as Christianity and something else? Now that I can't go to mass publicly, now that I have to make a spiritual communion, does this make me realize where I've been actually putting my emphasis? Is the important, has the important thing been saying hello to my friends? Has the important thing, you know, been the routine? Um, I think it can be an opportunity for us to say, well, let's put our faith first and not have it sort of tag along to other things that aren't actually all that important in the in the eternal scheme of things. Would, and in our spare time that we now have so much of uh, sheltering in place, would you recommend revisiting some of these writers, uh, such as Lewis, uh, uh, Tolkien, Chesterton? Uh, what would uh, your recommendations be where people should start? Oh, well, um, well where's the list? Um, it really, I, I do think, I think going back and reading these great authors, and now's a good time. And to read them, you know, maybe a little bit more patiently. Um, now that we, we have longer amounts of time, um, or many of us do anyway, um, you know, we can maybe fight against that sense of, of reading things in snatches, you know, the five-minute attention span 
um, you know, do a little bit of a, of a detox in a way from the short attention span that we get from digital things. Um, now, digital media is, is really good and helpful, but just like any anything else, it can, you know, develop bad, we can develop bad habits about it <laughs> as well as good. Like, we need to cultivate habits of attention. So yeah, maybe now's the time to read The Lord of the Rings. I'm actually just started rereading it myself for the umpteenth time. And you know, just entering into those first chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring, I realized, well, this is pretty applicable. You know, it's it's dealing with a, a threat to the Shire. He doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know how he's going to deal with it, but he's going to take what steps forward that, that he can. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of value in you know, entering into that. You know, take the opportunity to read Lewis's uh, Ransom trilogy. You know, go through the whole thing. Um, yeah. And I would also encourage folks to branch out a little bit more. Um, one of the authors that I've been reading very fruitfully is uh, Monsignor Ronald Knox, um, who is a Catholic um, priest. Um, he actually was a contemporary of Lewis and Tolkien. Um, and his sermons, you can get a whole volume of his sermons. Um, and he has such great practical advice. And he lived through the war you know, so he's, he's preaching in wartime. Um, he gets it. And just uh, reading Ronald Knox's sermons, maybe one a night before bedtime, you know, really a good way to get some spiritual reading in that maybe you wouldn't have thought to do otherwise. You had mentioned the Lord of the Rings. And one of the things I had heard that when J.R.R. Tolkien began writing that he really didn't realize how Catholic it was going to turn out. Uh, is that true? Um, yeah, well, there's a, it depends how you take it. There's a very famous line in one of his letters where he says that uh, the Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously in the writing, but consciously in the revision. Um, and I think, you know, insofar as we can parse that, you know, unconsciously Catholic because he himself was devoutly Catholic. So whatever he's mm -hmm. going to produce is going to be drawing from that. But I think it is, is more, you know, clearly Catholic because of the themes that he's dealing with, you know, uh, you know, self-sacrifice, good, evil, heroism, suffering. These are really deep Catholic themes. And I think that as he began to explore them more and more, you know, as the story developed, um, it became more apparent to him that this was the case, um, and you know, and and then he recognized it and, and worked with it. Um, Once more, we're talking to Dr. Holly Ordway, the newly appointed fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute. Now, the, one of the reasons I brought up uh, the unconscious um, Catholicism of Tolkien is. When we're talking apologetics, but especially when we're talking evangelization, how important is it that people recognize us for Catholics, not because we tell them, but because of what we do? Well, I think I think it's very important. Um, we've, we've got to be living our faith. And if we live our faith well, um, people are going to notice something a little bit different about us. Um, and I think in, in a, I mean, there's a balance because we don't, we don't want to be ostentatious um, and say, look at me, I'm a Catholic, look at me, look at me, because then people will look at you and you, are you ready to receive their scrutiny? <laughs> um, but I think there should be evidence in, in what we're doing. And I think, you know, this is one of the reasons why um, some of the practices of the faith 
that, you know, in, in recent, you know, the last 50 years have been slightly sidelined and are starting to come back a little bit um, are helpful. Like in England and Wales, um, the bishops of England and Wales actually have, have re, um, reimposed the obligation to abstain from meat on Fridays. It's no longer optional. It's, it's, a, it's back to what it was pre-Vatican II. In the U.S., it's still optional. Um, you, but most Catholics don't realize you're still supposed to do some sort of penance, but they don't kind of realize that it's supposed to be something. But I think there's great wisdom in what the bishops sitting on Wales did, because one of the, the things that marks a Catholic, if they, um, you know, if they, if they follow this practice, and I, and I do follow this practice, I abstain for me every Friday um, the whole year, even when I'm in the U.S. and I'm not actually technically obliged to do so, because it is a small way of marking um, my faith. You know, if I'm dining out with, rest- with, with friends at a restaurant on a Friday, um, well, when I can go out, that is, not now. Um, yes. It might, we might be, I, I really like steak, but if we're dining out on a Friday, I'll be getting the fish. And it has provided opportunities to talk about the faith and to mention it, but in a way that's natural and that isn't, you know, ostentatious. And, you know, something like this too, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on why we do these things. Um, like I think actually the most important value of, of the abstinence, whether it's Fridays and Lent or Fridays the whole year, is not so much the fish versus anything else. Um, because I mean, I like fish too, it's tasty. It's the restriction of choice. And I think especially for modern Americans, that's the real sacrifice. On Fridays, I have given up my freedom to choose whatever I like to eat. I'm, I'm sacrificing that. It's not so much about the, the food. It's about the restriction. And that, I think, is particularly difficult for us who are so addicted to endless choices. So in a conversation maybe with some you know, non-Christian friends, well, hey, I, hey, you know, I know you like steak. Why, why don't you order a steak? Well, because I embrace this restriction because it allows me to, you know, offer something up to God. If I can't give up this little thing, you know, am I really learning how to give up greater things uh, for him? So I think these kind of outward um, things that we do um, it, can be really good signals to other people that we take our faith seriously enough to give up inconveniences, to take on inconveniences and give up, you know, little things. And sometimes I actually think that that can be more kind of interesting to people than the big gestures. And I think that brings me back to the topic of the authors we've been talking about. What benefit do we derive in learning how to talk about our faith by reading Lewis, reading Tolkien? Um, No, I I think that um, primarily we need to nourish our own faith. Um, And I think we need to not instrumentalize the authors that we're reading and not say, I'm going to read the Lord of the Rings so that I can do X, Y, and Z. Now you should read the Lord of the Rings. who's a great novel. You should read the poetry of Gerard Manley Hopkins because he's a great poet. You know, you should read Lewis's Till We Have Faces because it's a great novel and on to all the other authors, you know, likewise. Um, I think that's the attitude we need to have it. We need to be faithful Catholics. We need to be growing in holiness because until we are growing in holiness, how can we expect to draw others to it? We have to be walking the path ourselves if we're going to draw people along with us. And that's hard 
you know, so I, I think we all need to be asking, am I going to confession regularly? Am I, you know, actually following the faith? Or am I making excuses for myself? Am I doing regular daily prayer? Um, or is there never really time for that? And am I, and this is where the authors come in, am I nourishing my faith and my spiritual life and my intellect and my imagination? Am I nourishing all those things with good and wholesome things that will help me to bring together all these different aspects of my faith and understand, understand it better? You know, because if we you know, take, say, Lewis, um, one of the great things about the Chronicles of Narnia is that in his own words, they're all about Christ. Um, and actually, I would really recommend your readers to Michael Ward's work on the subject um, in his book, Planet Narnia, um, or the uh, smaller book, uh, The Narnia Code, to, to see how the Chronicles really are all about Christ. So if we're really enjoying and assimilating this, this picture of Christ that we get from the seven books of the Chronicles of Narnia, we're going to have a kind of more well-rounded understanding of who our Lord is, and that will translate into our prayer life, and that will translate into our devotional life, and it will translate into our ability to talk about who Jesus is to somebody else, so that it's not just, oh, you know, this, this figure mentioned in, in the Bible that, you know, is important. It's like, no, what's this robust picture of the cosmic Christ? Um, so I think that's one of the ways that these great authors can, can help, that if we, you know, we nourish our, our own minds um, and hearts properly, then we can evangelize much more effectively. We're nearing the end of our interview, so I would like to give you an opportunity, since you are beginning your work at Word on Fire, what are you hoping to accomplish through your work on Word on Fire? And uh, It's one of the most successful things out there as far as Catholic apologetics and education go. What are you hoping to do? Well, I'm first of all, I'm just honored to be you know brought in as, as part of, of the team. Um, and I'm hoping that I can you know share what I've been doing with imagination and apologetics with a, with a wider audience because Word on Fire is really great um, with equipping people to do evangelization for the situation that we actually have today. Um, and that's I think the way that my work dovetails most closely with, with what Bishop Barron has already been doing, it's a different world out there. And I know this from my own teaching. I know this from my own apologetics work. The arguments and the approach that we used 50 years ago don't work anymore. The things that 20 years ago were important topics are not what people are talking about. Um, and one of the highlights of poor uh, concepts of my own work has been we have to answer the questions people have not the ones we wish they had or think they should have. And I, that's where imaginative strategies can, can really help, you know, trying to figure out ways to share the faith with where people actually are, not what we wish they were. So what I'm hoping and with my work on Water and Fire is that I will be able to take my part in equipping a whole new generation of Catholics to be more effective in reaching out to the nuns, to the fallen away Catholics, to the people who've never given a thought to religion at all, because um, we've got to find new ways to reach them because the old ways don't work. And we've got souls to save here. We can't stand on our ground and say, well, it should work. Well, if it doesn't, it doesn't. 
let's find new ways to reach them. And that's, I think, where my work in imagination is, is going to be helpful in my word on firework. But I would hope that the use of the authors such as Tolkien and Lewis and Chesterton and Flannery O'Connor, we find new ways to introduce modern people to how wonderful these works are. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the fact that my book on Tolkien is going to be published by Word on Fire next year is a good sign that, yep, we got to get more people reading the great authors and um, find new ways to reach, you know, create new authors as well. I want to thank you very much for being on the program. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, I find this topic absolutely fascinating because all of them are favorite authors of mine, and I've learned a lot from them. So thank you very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. And I want to remind all our listeners that next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host for the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when you're considering the many ways in which you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. Rumors and talk.